lost. Well, we'll treat you like you're lost, but that's all you're going to give us to work with because we can't do anything else, right? What are we going to do? If you're lying, you're cheating, you're stealing, and that's all you want to do and you won't repent of it, well, hey, I'm not saying if you made a profession that you're saved, you're lost. That's up to you and the Lord, but I'm going to have to treat someone that acts lost like they are lost if they don't obey. Does that make sense? It's a great counseling rule, too, for principles of counseling. But uh, even when we do not grow, we got to be careful, though. I want to put a warning out. We have to we have to give folks the benefit of the doubt um, and and uh, and prove that they cannot walk in the spirit. Right. And that takes time, too. That's why you got to be careful with young Christians. I've talked about that a lot because young Christians, what the spirit of God's dealing with them on is not necessarily what the spirit of God is dealing with you on. Right. So when you first get saved, that you have these huge sins in your life you know, whatever that is, and then God deals with that, and then you deal with this other one. Uh, but, you know, for some people, smoking cigarettes may not be the hugest sin. It might be lying or doing something. So let God work all that out in their own heart and their conscience. And, of course, praying that they continue to just deal with whatever God gives them. And don't be judgmental because God will work it out. Uh, if he's God, he'll take care of it. Pray for him and encourage him. Um, and let the Spirit of God do what the Spirit of God does. So uh, even when we don't... Uh, so even... Even at times like even even though uh, we understand that we're forgiven, um, we got to be careful uh, to understand too that God chastens us, and we cannot allow the devil to allow us to be bitter. Uh, because man, I tell you what, that will mess up our 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 future. God has a plan for us. So I put a verse in here, and I think it's in your notes. It is Second Corinthians uh, chapter two, verse ten. Does anybody have that verse? You want to read it? I don't have the mic up here. I don't. Think. I do have the mic. Of course, we're spread out. Well, I'll go ahead and read it for time's sake. But if I, anybody wants to read a, a verse, just come and grab the mic. Uh, but Paul says, To whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgave anything, for if I forgive anything, to whom I forgive it, for your sakes, forgive I it in the person of Christ, lest Satan should get an advantage of us. For we are not ignorant of his devices. Does anybody know what the, what chapter uh, two of Second Corinthians is dealing with? What's Paul talking about there? What thing is he talking about being forgiven? If I forgive in the person of Christ, does anyone remember? Ron, do you know? Yeah, that one's not the. That's, that, that's not. He's dealing with the actual the, this guy that had an affair with his his dad's mom, wife. That was a nasty situation. In chapter, in the first epistle, he's like, guys, you got to boot this guy out of the church. His conversation, his lifestyle is such that, man, not even lost people know that isn't going to happen. You know, you got to let him know that he can't continue in that and still show up and do the Lord's Supper. Uh, that's not going to work. So they did that. But then, you know what? He repented. So uh, so that was a, that was a sin that if, if it was went unrepented, you'd have thought, well, this guy's lost. But then he repented. So Paul is like saying, oh, okay, forgive him. Uh, and notice what he says in 2 Corinthians 2.11. He says, for we are not ignorant of his devices. His is Satan. Satan has devices. So Satan has a course, and then he has devices. Once you get off of his course, he has devices to try to mess up the body of Christ. And one of the devices he uses is people's bad conversation. So there's this guy who had a bad conversation. He's having a sexual relationship with his dad's wife, his stepmom. It's so bad that Paul says, get that out of the church because it's going to cause problems in the community. 
They're going to see you as hypocrites and, and jokes. So they did that right. Well, then he repents, and they're like, okay, now bring him back and forgive him. Why? Because we don't want Satan, right? Someone who has a course for this world. Once we get out of that course and we get in the right course and we're walking in the spirit, we don't want him to get an advantage over us, right? So he has devices as well. So we're to beware of some of the things that corrupt our new conversation. So let me just add a few of those for you. And I'm still under point B here, under 1B. Um, I just These are just off the top of my head. Maybe you can add a few. Uh, but today, one of the things that this is really kind of macro, and I, I covered this when I was teaching church history in our HBI course last semester, but philosophy, right? That's a big one. Philosophy affects our conversation as Christians. So we need to be aware of that. There's all kinds of philosophies floating around. Paul said in the Old Testament, or in the book of Thessalonians, not in the Old Testament, he said they were, he called things winds of doctrine. Doctrine is teaching. So Paul says, be careful because there's all kinds of winds of doctrine. There's all kinds of teaching. Well, in Colossians, we're taught about philosophy in particular. Some philosophies that I can think of are humanism, right? Humanism is anything but humane when you, th- when you really boil it down. Humanism, that sounds like a nice word. You know, that's, we got the humane society. <laughs> you, know, so you think that, oh, okay, that's a good thing. But it really ends up not being very good. The theories and philosophies of Darwin uh, led to survival of the fittest. You guys have heard of natural selection, right? And natural selection doesn't work out very good. That's what Hitler was basing his theories on, was natural selection. You take that to the, its end length and you have an elitist group of people. And if you don't measure up, then guess what? You, get, you need to be cut out. You need to, the, the herd needs to be thinned. It's the opposite of Christianity, going to the weak, right, and helping them, a resurrection from the dead, right? That's what we do as Christians. It's totally, it's antithetical to humanism. What's that? Oh, yeah, I'm glad that's not on recording. So praise the Lord. <laughs> so, uh, but uh, yeah, and so so um, so those theories, those those uh, those those things can mess up the conversation, the mindset. You know, when you think about uh, those things, of course, that led in the last century to millions of people being killed. Uh, science falsely so called uh, void of divinity has led the killing of innocent children in the womb being doomed. They've been deemed as unviable tissue mass, right? Uh, and if you've had an abortion, I'm not mad at you. Jesus can forgive you and, and help you through that. But then on the, same to- on the same token, on one hand, it's like, oh, that's unviable tissue mass. That's not a human. But on the other hand, you celebrate the woman who made the decision, boasting about you know, how the mother gets a better quality of life. What about the quality of life of the child that just got aborted? It is just, it's anti, again, it's just, it's confusion. And it's, uh, it's very, very confusing. And that's exactly who authors it, is, is the author of confusion. And so uh, Colossians 2.8, that's another one of your references there on the handout. So, so Paul's not mincing any words here. He's like, hey, beware. Colossians 2.8. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain, empty deceit, after the tradition of man, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Right? So beware, because there's some folks, because now he just lays it out here, uh, any man. It doesn't, because not every man is doing this from some ivory tower somewhere, some collegiate level educational system. Some are in pulpits preaching humanism some are some are preaching philosophies that are not biblical 
and they're just in their winds of doctrine flying through the church and it's corrupting conversation. So in 1 Corinthians 6, the Bible says um, in verse 9, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. I'm just going to park on that for just a second. That is what... On the course of this world, that's what it looks like. He just Paul just kind of rattles it off there. That's what was going on, and really what he was doing is setting a contrast for the saints at the church of Corinth who were actually participating in all that. Saying, guys, there's no inheritance for you uh, uh, if you continue in that. But then he says in verse 11, which is so huge, I love this passage, and such were some of you, but ye are washed, ye are sanctified, ye are justified, in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. So that verse is so important because you have to really recognize what the Bible says you are. Because Corinth was carnal. And Paul's saying, guys, right, that's who you used to be. That is not who you are. There are a lot of people in our society, and this is one of the things I fear. I don't have, I don't fear because God doesn't give the spirit of fear, power of love and sound mind, but understand one of the concerns i have about our ptsd ministry is is the reality that everyone faces trauma right and so uh we that ministry is not just for people who have had trauma because all of us have had trauma i can give you examples of my life where i've had trauma that ministry is designed for people who are, have extreme trauma and issues like that but when you start having ministries like that all of a sudden people can start to you start to explain all the all the these this is what some of PTSD has. All of a sudden, people are like, "Oh my gosh, I'm a victim. I'm a victim. I have PTSD." I, I guarantee, if I listed all the PTSD things that people have symptoms, most of us would raise our hand. Like, I've had nightmares. I've had this. I've had that. I've had anxiety. Whatever. Well, guess. Th- listen, that's not what we're talking about. That's not what that ministry's for. We're not wanting to make people victims. Because in Christ, you're a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new, right? Uh, and so uh, we got to be careful because the devil's so smooth. And such were some of you. But you're washed, you're sanctified, you're justified. Paul's saying, and you hath he quickened, past tense, right? That's who you were. You were on a course of this world, but you're not anymore. And so praise God for that. So Christ changes our worldview. You know, when I was lost, I was against God. I was against God's purposes. I was against the nation of Israel. I, I was a little kid, and I didn't, I'm just watching the news, and I'm like, oh, man, I'm all for the Palestinians. I saw Arafat go. I never did figure out why I had that checkered-looking head thing on. I never could. You know, I can't, the, the fact that I would eventually get to know his uh, hitman, and his hitman gets saved, how awesome is that? But uh, praise God. But, but Christ changes our worldview. And you know what? Next thing you know, you start reading the Bible and you go, oh, God had a place for Israel. God's doing something with Israel. That doesn't mean they're pure as the wind driven snow, of course. But you got to understand God's purposes. And you're like, oh, so God changes. You know what? Sometimes we get, that's another thing I need to mention real quick. Sometimes, especially in the world we're in right now, people get torqued when you don't, like, when people don't agree with you. Or they don't understand, you know, these issues. Listen, guys, when I got saved, I was so radically opposite of what I am now. I mean, in the way I even thought. Because I had a whole lifetime of the philosophies of this world. I was pro-abortion. I was 
pro-Palestine, which I'm not against Palestinians. I, I love Palestinians, but I mean, you understand in a geopolitical sense, I was just whatever they told me. That's what I was going with, you know, and I didn't understand anything to do with the Bible. You know what? I didn't need a course on any of those other things. All I needed is to study the Bible. God naturally or supernaturally changes your mind. That's what uh, Romans 12 is all about, right? Uh, that, that in, in Philippians chapter 2, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. So, so relax, especially today. There's a lot of ignorance out there. The Bible is becoming increasingly and increasingly um, marginalized in the eyes of the world, in, along with Christianity. So, so you're going to have to be patient and drive people to the book because it's not the same world we lived in. I remember when we were doing discipleship to, gosh, now almost 15 plus years ago, and Sharon, Sharon, uh, uh, Sharon, not De Leon, Sharon Vulcan. I was telling her, I was like in class saying, you know, there's people today that have never heard the name of Jesus. And she's like, are you meaning in the United States? And I'm like, Sharon, I'm telling you, in the United States. My wife barely knew anything about Jesus when she, I mean, you had heard very little about the Bible. All she remembered was you got baptized as a kid and got hurt and down the, rolling down the steps or something. And that was about it. And my grandma was a Methodist. So there were people in our country who don't know. And she's like, Really? I'm like, and then it wasn't like a week or two later, she's up at the Independence Center, and she runs into this girl and starts to witness to her and finds out this girl has never heard of Jesus, never heard of Jesus, and it just rocked her world. Well, guys, it's just increasingly, we got to understand, this generation coming up, the Generation Z generation, they're, they're in the, they are so plugged into technology. When I was a kid, I had to watch whatever was on TV. I, had to, I didn't have a choice on Sunday morning. You're going to watch someone preach, whether you like it or not, <laughs> you know? Well, today it ain't that way. You just go to whatever device you want to get on and you watch whatever you want to watch. It's all about you. And you can get whatever you want at your fingertips. And so there's a whole generation coming up. They're not exposed to other worldviews. So we got to really know the word of God and be persuasive and introduce them to Christ because their conversation is going toward a course that's set up for Satan. And we need to help people understand that they've been quickened. That's not who they are. Their identity will change, but you got to understand when people are brainwashed, it takes them a while to get unwashed, right? That's why we got to wash our mind in the Word. All right, so I'm preaching to the choir. Satan has a course of this world, and but you know what? That's interesting about that course is he's the one walking about seeking whom he may devour. In First Peter chapter five, we know the Bible says, "Be sober and vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour." Now you know he's not a roaring lion. He is walking about as a roaring lion. Who's the roaring lion? Who? Jesus, right? Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. So all Satan is doing is portraying himself as an angel of light. He's got a course for people, and he's just roaring. You know, stay on my course. The reality is we just look at him. You're no lion, and that ain't my course. I'm on a different path. So Paul's writing those first few verses of of Ephesians chapter 2 to say, look, guys, that's who you were. That's the course we all used to be on. But we're not there anymore. We're quickened. We're made alive. We're new creatures in Christ. And, and then he throws this down. Look at this. And, and uh, this is as far as I got last week. He says um, uh, that the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. So there's a spirit that works in the children of disobedience. And I had that spirit when I was lost, and you did too. John chapter 8. If you have your Bible, flip over there because this is a lot of reading. Did you have this on the screen? That's, I put some, there's so much verses, ver, verbiage there, I'm not sure that that'll fit on the screen. So flip over to John chapter 8, because I'm going to work this just a little bit. If you've been through Discipleship 1, which is our, our Bible study for folks that are 
you know, online and here at HBF. It's just a real simple course uh, where we build relationships with folks and, and get them involved in learning the Word of God and growing together. We spend some time on this in verse 44, the verse that says, You're of your father the devil, as we deal with the two natures uh, that reside in every Christian. You have your flesh, which is uh, fighting against God, and then you have your spirit and your soul, which are set apart and serve God. So in John chapter 8, in verse 39, I'm going to back it up a little bit. There's a discussion that Jesus is having here with the Pharisees, and uh, it's very, really pretty contentious. Jesus is, I mean, he's really not backing off on them. And, uh, in, you know, in verse 33, I'm going to back up a little further. It says, They answered him, We be of Abraham's seed, and we're never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? Because he's like, hey, um, you know what? You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Well, that immediately sets them off. It's like, wait a minute. We know the truth. We've got the Torah. We've got the law. What are you telling us? We, we know the truth. We know whose we are. We're Abraham's seed. And so that kind of sets off the discussion because Jesus is proclaiming that he is the way, the truth, and the life. So uh, in verse 34, Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth a sin is a servant of sin. And, the, and uh, the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth ever. If the son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. I know that you're Abraham's seed, but ye seek to kill me, because my word hath no place in you. I speak that which I have seen with my father, capital F, and ye do that which you have seen with your father, small f. So you're following the traditions of your father, but I'm telling you, I'm coming from the father, I'm the, he is, you know, you can read it. You know what he's saying. Verse 39, then answered and then, uh, or they answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus saith unto them, if Abraham, uh, Abra if ye were Abraham's children, which is what their claim was, ye would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man that hath told you the truth, which I heard of God. This did not Abraham. Now, verse 40 is incredible because Jesus is saying, you know, Abraham never gave me any grief. <laughs> well, these guys are like, what did he just say? And then it goes on to say, you do the deeds of your father. Then said they to him, we be not born of fornication. That's a backhanded stab at Jesus because they assume that he's born of fornication with Mary and Joseph. We, not, we be not born of fornication. We have one father. Now they're talking to father. Even God, and Jesus uh, said unto them, If God were your father, ye would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. So Jesus is, in essence, proclaiming his own deity. Verse 43, Why do you not understand my speech? Even because you cannot hear my word. Ye are, And then he really lets them have it. Ye are of your father. Here's the definition of the word father in this context. The devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. And because I tell you the truth, ye believe me not. And then he goes on to say, Which of you convinceth me of sin? And if I say the truth, why do you not believe me? He that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not, because ye are not of God. Now this was, this was a heavy saying. Who can hear it? Jesus is really letting these guys have it. 
And this is important because when Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 is talking about being um, at the end of verse, uh, verse uh, 3 there, the, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, he really is talking about the influence of Satan upon the culture. And that's not an overstatement. And increasingly you can begin to see that, that spirit. We call the spirit of Antichrist, right? It's an Antichrist spirit. The, now religious people can have an Antichrist spirit just as well as lost people. So it's not about, uh, you know, it, it, isn't, it, it is about the receiving the words, the truth, the word, the, the word of God. Sometimes they reject the messenger, but oftentimes it is the message itself. So we all have to deal with that. I can remember when I was in that place. I've told my testimony, you know, enough people to remember. I can remember rejecting Alex Jamie's witnessing to me on the bus. As soon as, you know, I so I just... Some spirit took me. I mean, it was me. It was my own sin. I didn't like it being exposed. I thought he was an idiot, and I derided him too cruelly. Um, and then when I was coming out of the Van Halen concert, I got a track, read the track, thought it was cool until I got to the gospel, then I got mad. You know, what was that? That was, that was the spirit of disobedience that worked in me. I was on a different course. And when I heard the truth, I just didn't like it. You know, I can't explain it. Other than that, I was wicked and lost and needed Jesus. Now, what's awesome is I was not long after that, I got saved. I mean, praise God. So be encouraged. Like when you witness to somebody and they're like cantankerous and they're, you know, they're like flipping you off or whatever. or Get out of here, you know, whatever. I mean, don't be a jerk. Just say, hey, praise the Lord. I love you. If you ever change your mind, meekness isn't weakness, <laughs> you know, and roll and let God do the work. But don't be surprised if they don't get saved later. Because God does that. He does it. I'm an example. Okay, so he talks about this former conversation, and that, that's common to all of us. I've already touched on that in verse 3. So no Christian can deny their, conversa- their uh, conversation used to be corrupt and controlled by the lusts of their flesh. I mean, Paul makes that clear. So if you're one of those Christians, it's like, I've always been saved. I got, you better rethink that again because you have not always been saved. There has to come a point in your life when you realize that you are on a course that's leading to destruction and you need Jesus Christ as Savior. That doesn't mean you have to have this testimony of being a drug addict and, you know, I did all this. It could be something very simple. A child stealing a cookie out of a cookie jar can be bring enough conviction to help them know they're a sinner. So it's not about measuring ourselves against ourselves. The Bible actually says that's unwise. But when the heart is convicted about sin and, and the need for Christ, man, you need to take care of it. You need, to, you need to get the gospel. And sometimes it's obviously it is the gospel often that helps reveal that. And so, uh, so we can't deny that. Even good things that we did when we were lost are fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind because, they were by, because we were by nature the children of wrath. So Paul is religious and biblically, and he's the best example I can think of. Paul is religious and biblically correct of a, as a, of a man as he was, and he was. I mean, really in the context of where he was in time and place, outside of Jesus, he was a godly man, so to speak. And he was, I mean, he says it. I mean, there's nobody straighter in the law than Paul. So he was a moral man, good guy. You know, you're not, you're not going to see him trying to go out and skirt the edges. He's wanting to keep the whole law, which he can't do. So his own conscience is convicted. But he was a biblically correct person. Uh, yet his solution to theological problems that troubled his people, the Jews, was capital punishment. Uh, And so he slayed those who believed that Jesus had fulfilled the law 
while he himself could not keep the law. He's the one who said that in Romans 7, 8, but sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. You guys know what concupiscence is? We don't use that word. That's a, I think there is probably that's still being used in legal circles, but concupiscence is unbridled lust. Now, I don't know. He doesn't give us the details. We don't need to know, but whatever. Whether he was doing it or not, he definitely knew he had a lust problem. He was, there was something, power, money, women, drugs. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I didn't know Paul. But there was something that he was, he was lusting after. And uh, he said, man, it, it rotten me all manner of concupiscence. Uh, and then he goes on to say, for without the law, sin was dead. But of course, when the law, uh, when he knew the law, it revived him, and then he died, is what he said. So Romans chapter 7, that's where he finally goes at the end of that verse, at the end of that chapter. He's like, things I want to do, I can't do. And he talks about that difference between the flesh and the spirit, that battle that goes on between the old man and the new man. And so Paul confesses his walk was filled with contradiction because he was not quickened and didn't live in the grace of God. But now he says, and you hath he quickened who were, past tense, dead in trespasses, or trespass, I'm sorry, and sins. All right, I spent a lot of time on that, but that's really important because you don't you want to remember what you were saved from. You're quickened from the dead, and you're quickened um, to have, uh, what was point number two here? I forgot my own point. Uh, it's a new conversation, I think, is what that was. Yeah, quickened conversation, quickened lifestyle. So, the profession ought to match the outward working, and there ought to be some evidence in our walk that we are born again, for sure. But the person that needs to be convinced is you, right? You're the one that has to walk in the Spirit, not fulfill the lust of the flesh. You're the one who has to keep a short account with God and, and, real, and realize His power. And like Paul said to the Corinthians, and such were some of you. So sometimes it's good just to go back over the first three verses of Ephesians chapter 2 just to remember who you're not. And then when you get to verses 4 through 10, he talks about how the Christian has been quickened. So he kind of elaborates on the other side. So if that's not who we are, who are we? Well, I'm glad you asked. So, but God, who is rich in mercy, so now we're getting into these blessings again, for his great love wherewith he loved us. So our love comes from God. Uh, even when we were dead in sins, he hath, or hath uh, quickened us together with Christ by grace you're saved. That's how much you're loved. That before you could even name his name, or even have understanding. Before you are even born, God had already provided a solution. That's love. So point A is Christ's love for us, is verse 4. God, God, is, God is love. It's not just like he loves us. He does love us, but he is love. Uh, he's not only loving, uh, but his, God, his, his love is, is, is not just an attribute. It is, it is really just a manifestation of his holiness. Uh, in 1 John 4, 8, it says, He that loveth... Or he that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. I mean, that is, God is love. He's not just loving, you know, like I'm, I could be loving, you can be loving, but God is love. There's the definition, the personification of love. That's why I like the word charity uh, in 1 Corinthians. A lot of people in new translations translate it as love. Well, love's a little hard to get your head around because uh, there's different forms of love, and everybody talks about agape and and all of that, but the thing about charity is, is charity, is, it can be a noun, it can be a verb, um, but it really is like, it's not just love in action, although it is love in action, it's also, it gives you, a, it's a, it can be personified, and uh, charity never fails, it's an outward working of love, but God's nature is love, so God is love, but he also loved us, so God loved us, well, and you guys know this, he loved us 
with his son on the cross. So the sacrifice of his son revealed his hatred for sin and his love for sinners. So we therefore are saved because of his mercy and grace that results because of his love. So and that's kind of hard to get your head around. So God is love. But just love didn't save us alone. It was his mercy and grace that saved us. So uh, two things that reveal God that God loved us. One is he gave his only begotten son, which we know that in John 3, 16. Uh, many of us, that's the first, even before I was a Christian, I memorized that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, uh, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So when he was going to manifest his nature, being that of love, he manifested it and loved us through his son, the Lord Jesus, which is his incarnation. So he gave his only begotten son. That's the first thing he did to, to show that he really loved us. And then secondly, he slayed his only begotten son. Now that's love. Uh, Romans 5, 8, but God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And I've used this analogy a lot, but it's a good one. I used to, I, it came to me one time witnessing at the mission, but um, you know, if you had a, the solution, say COVID was a really, really nasty disease and we were all going to die because of it. And your son, your son has the, the DNA and his blood type, right? That's it. It's just you, Nick. Now, the, the, the thing is, what do you do? Do you give your son for the world? The only thing is to get the blood out of him, they're going to have to take his life. That'd be a hard decision, right? Everybody in the world or your son? Most of us would be like, oh, no, take me first, right? Do anything. But God said, you know what? I, I'm going to love these people. I'm going to show my love. I'm gonna, not, only, I'm, not only am I going to give my son, but I'm going to slay my son. I'm going I'm to reveal my hatred for sin by by showing it on my own son because he's the only one that can handle it nobody else in the world can handle god's just wrath nobody only jesus can actually the people as a matter of fact his just wrath is so severe that everybody else that faces it is going to spend eternity and it's never going to be quenched that's how just his wrath is it is unquenchable yet there was a man his name is jesus who was able to take the in three hours was able to deal with it because his righteousness equaled his justice, his, his wrath, which brought justice. That's why we're justified in Christ. It's amazing to think about. But boy, what kind of love is that for a father to give his son? For people who were not just and worthy of God's wrath. Whoa. That's some kind of love. That's, that's the love this world needs big time right now. And so, uh, man, all praise to God for that. That's just, that's amazing. Literally amazing grace. So, so point B is Christ's power in us. So he moves on in verse 4, right? He says, there's this great love wherewith he, he, he loved us. There's great love wherewith he loved us. Not only does he have great love, not only is he great love, but then he loved us with his son. He gave us his son, then he slayed his son. Wow. Verse 5, even when we were dead. He did it even before we were, were, were um, you know, we didn't earn it. Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace, you're saved. Man, what a beautiful verse that is. And then it goes on to say, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So he quickened us, right? He brought us, this gets back to verse 1, he, he brought us to life. He quickened us together with Christ. That means Jesus' resurrection is applied to my salvation, to your salvation. And God has predestinated or foreordained that those who would be born again would be quickened together with Christ. That's what that's talking about in chapter 1 and all those blessings. How does that happen? Well, through the operation of God in the indwelling Holy Spirit. Because that's another part of this equation is the Spirit of God. Now, Paul's not bringing that up right here, but he will in chapter 4. So notice Jesus' re resurrection 
has been applied to all our lives. He says, and hath, past tense, raised us up. Well, there isn't one of us here that's been raised up yet. Well, what does that mean? Well, even though we, lo- we look forward to the resurrection when we'll be physically changed and, and, uh, and we'll be uh, uh, counted in that resurrection of Christ, Jesus already counts us as resurrected because of the Spirit of God. He imputes not only the righteousness of Christ in us, which he does that, but he also imputes the resurrection of Christ. The power of Christ to resurrect from the dead is now living in you via the Spirit of God. That's why when Jesus says, come up hither someday, we're going to come up hither. And, and so, that's again, these are kind of hard things to get our heads around. But even though we look forward to the resurrection... In a sense, God has already counted the resurrection to us because Jesus Christ, our life is hid in Christ, just as our sin is hid in Him. In him. And so Jesus, in, in John eleven twenty five, He said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. So Jesus standing there, right, He's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He reminds her, I'm the resurrection. He's not, he's not just able to resurrect. He is the resurrection. He is the power. And so uh, when did he raise up? Well, on the third day. And, and we are alive because Jesus is alive. Just as his righteousness is imputed to me, so is his resurrection. So there will come a day when he will say, come up hither. And regardless of whether I'm dead or alive, physically, it isn't going to matter. I'm going to come up hither. That is the promise of the resurrection. Why is that power available to me? Well, because he made it so when he loved me through his son. It's amazing, and you too, if you're born again. So, so we're going to be changed, we're going to be caught up, we're going to be, as he says, we're quickened. Now, he doesn't say you will be quickened, he hath quickened us. So we often talk about the difference between position, you know, and all of that, because positionally you're already seated together in heavenly places. That means God, God sees you as you're already there, because he sees you in Christ. But practically, it's like our sanctification, and we're already sanctified. We're set apart for God's use, but then daily we work out what that looks like on this earth. Uh, and so you had to see the same thing with, and you hath he quickened. You're already alive. And we talked about that last week. I actually got some feedback on that, that point that you're alive now. As, I mean, you, you, you're going to be quickened. You'll, be, you'll get rid of this carcass, but you're already eternal if you're born again. Eternity has already began for all of us if you're saved. You just, it, for me, March 25th, 1987, I mean, I was always going to be eternal. There's a moment. Up until March 25th, I was eternally destined for hell. There was no way to, to satiate God's just wrath. But once I trusted Christ and received the free gift of salvation, guess what? Now I am eternal. I have a new, I'm a new creature. God did something inside of me, even though I didn't understand it any more than a baby does the day he gets born. I was born again. I just knew I needed to eat, and I was a new creature. I didn't even know what all that meant. But the, Jesus did a work in me, and guess what? The next thing... I start to realize incrementally. I'm like several years later, I'm sitting in shepherd school listening to Pastor Alan Shelby teach, and I'm like, eternity began the day you got saved. It rocked my world. I'm like, whoa. For me, that is so true. Now, eternal life with Christ began the day I got saved. Wow, that's crazy. And you hath he quickened. It just doth not yet appear what you shall be. But you know what? First John's true. When you see him, you'll be just like he is. It's amazing what's going to happen, and that's also promise of the resurrection. All right, so um, so point C, Christ's plans for us. That's important, too. Uh, I want to quickly get through this. So he's got power in us. He's got plans for us as well in verse 7. And, the, and in the ages, and that in the ages to, co- that, uh, to come, sorry, I can't speak. 
that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his graces, his graces of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. So now we get to go into the ages to come. And many confuse ages to come with dispensations, and there is a distinction. Dispensations reside in ages, but ages do not necessarily reside in dispensations, which is a Bible study we could have unto itself, but I'm not going to get into that too far. Uh, but Paul will continue to expand on the ages uh, as he writes in Ephesians in chapters to come. In chapter 3, he says, "...which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men," talking about past ages, as it now is revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Uh, in Colossians 1.26, Paul said, Even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints. So here Paul is referencing the mystery of Christ was not understood in ages past, and there are some who believe that, that one had to understand the gospel in the Old Testament to be saved, but that's not possible. Uh, because they had to keep the law and the prophets by faith and obey the light that they had, and then God would give them grace. So salvation is always by grace through faith, but it's not in, in Christ because many of them might believe the Messiah is coming, but they don't know his name. They didn't know his name until he showed up, and John the Baptist had to point him out. Behold the Lamb of God that take away the sin of the world. Okay, so they didn't. that's not what happened. So what happened? I'm glad you asked. They didn't fully grasp the prophecies of Messiah until he showed up and, and, and those folks in the Old Testament, those Old Testament saints, as we call them, you know what? They are in Abraham's bosom, and they're waiting. And guess what? One day Jesus shows up. He just died on the cross and said, it is finished. And next thing you know, he shows up, and guess what? He preaches for three days in the center of the earth. I'm your Messiah. And they're all like, sir, yes, sir. <laughs> and the next thing you know, he delivers captivity captive and gives gifts unto men, which is also brought up in the book of Ephesians. We'll get into that later. And so God intend, intended to reveal uh, that glory um, throughout all ages through the church. And that's what he wants to do. What, what a great understanding of, of now the, the vow that we picture when we do marriage, till death do us part. Well, on the earthly sense, we're all going to die, and so that's as long as those vows carry. But for us that are saved, we have a relationship with Christ as the bride of Christ that goes on forever and ever because we never die. And for all of that time that, that he is going to manifest, I mean, read what it says there. He goes, he says, and when, and, and verse 6, and he hath raised us, he's talking about the church, up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? That in the ages to come he might show exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. I mean, for the rest of eternity, he's gonna, when people want to understand God's grace and kindness, they're going to look to the church, the redeemed, those that are born again, that make up the bride of Christ. It's going to be incredible. Now, he'll fulfill all of his promises to Israel as well. Uh, but but the, the bride of Christ has a unique relationship with Christ. Okay, so uh, Ephesians 3.21. Unto him be glory in the, in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. This is a long time. So the anointed cherub that covered the, the throne and was a light bearer in eternity passed. Um, We'll now see the light of God's glory resonating through the bride of Christ. That's why 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in the resurrection and illumination go hand in hand. When we get resurrected, we're going to be resurrected unto glory. That's not just an idle word. We're going to have different magnitudes of glory. Some are like the sun, and some are like the stars, and some are like the moon. 
all of that's going to be revealed through the bride of Christ. It'll be illuminated. We'll be illuminating God's grace and mercy for eternity. It's going to be incredible. And that one who used to bear the light, well, of course, he's going to be cast on a lake of fire. But there's a reason that he wants to beguile the church. Because we're, we're edging in on his... He used to be the one covering the throne and radiating light in the third heaven and all of that. Now guess who's going to be there for all of eternity? Radiating light in the third heaven. You got it. All of us. The church. We're the bride of Christ. It's a beautiful thing. So point D, and I'll be done. Um, and I got, I'm a little over time, so forgive me. The last one, I want to get this in, though, for time's sake, is Christ's sufficiency. Christ's sufficiency. Okay, so you see that in verses 8 and 10. For by, for by grace are you saved through faith, that, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. We Most of us know this. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. All right. Amen, amen. So Christ's sufficiency for salvation, that won't surprise you. Verses 8 and 9, uh, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace are you saved through faith. I don't want to minimize that, but many of us are familiar, familiar with that, and it's a great passage, a wonderful passage to use to, when we're leading people to Christ, that salvation is it's, it's, a, uh, it's a gift, not a reward. Right? Salvation is not a reward, it's a gift. You didn't do anything to earn it, you know. He gives it to us by grace. Uh, and Warren Wiersbe said that once, and that's a, good, that's a good way of putting it. It's a, it's a gift given by a benevolent father, as we saw in John 3.16. So sacraments aren't necessary because Jesus did the finished work, right, when he hung on the cross. John 19.30, when Jesus said, it is finished, and he bowed his head, it was finished. The work of our, that needed to be done for our salvation, it was accomplished when Jesus was on the cross. So we are saved by grace through faith. And that not of ourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works as any man should boast. So um, some folks think Jesus suffered in hell, and they quote Jonah 2, 2 to support that. And that's a great example of why we don't base a doctrine on just one passage of Scripture. Because I would believe that too if that's the only verse I had. But if all we understand about the death, burial, and resurrection was found in that prophecy of Jonah, then that'd be a good summation. However, as we compare Scripture with Scripture... Even the Old Testament passages of Scripture, like Psalm chapter 22 and 23, help us understand and work out that Jesus did all that suffering on the cross. And then Hebrews makes it abundantly clear. right? He died once for sin. Sin was taken care of at his death. He died on the cross, and it was finished. He said it was finished, and it was finished, and he gave up the ghost. Then he entered Abraham's bosom victoriously, and he came out preaching, leading the captives uh, captive and giving gifts unto men. So what can we learn from Jonah 2 is the agony, though. When you look at Jonah chapter 2, you see the agony that Jesus suffered on the cross as hell was brought to Jesus on the cross. That text says, And I said, I cried by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord, and he heard me out of the belly of hell, cried I, but thou heardest my voice. And if you take that and combine it with uh, Psalm chapter 22 and 23, you get a lot better picture of the blow-by-blow agony that Jesus Christ suffered on the cross. All right, so point two under that. The first one was salvation, right? Christ is sufficient for our salvation, verses 8 and 9. Most of us are familiar with that. But one of the other thing I think that we need to remember, and is often lacking, especially today, is that he's sufficient for our service, in verse 10. And I, I often quote this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Right? There's something, we're all saved to do something. Not just, oh, good, I'm out of hell. Whew. Let me go back to watching television now. Right? Nothing wrong with watching television, I watch television. My point is, you're not just saved for your sake. God saves you to go to work. Now, I'm really sticky about that. That's why we have a discipleship ministry. My dad was saved and put to work, and there was no biblical foundation. 
just work, 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 right? I don't care if you come to church, just work. I don't care if you're in the service, just go pick up the kids at YFC. I don't care if you're in the church service, as long as you build that addition on the building. You know what I'm saying? Well, that, you know what he said? That's disingenuous. He didn't say that. That's what I'm saying he said. He said something more choice than that. But anyway, the point being is they burned my dad out. Good, hard-working man. One day he couldn't make the YFC bus, and then they put a guilt trip on him, and that was it. He hung up the phone never went back to church again. Why? Because the word of God wasn't. What gets us to work is the word. you got to get the word in, and the work will start to come out. Now, you can't be puffed up and just have knowledge. That's what Paul said. Knowledge puffeth up. Charity exercises. So you've got to get the word in so you can get the work out. Now, if all you do is get knowledge and you never go to work, you're missing the boat. Because we all know that you don't just learn by going to school. You learn by going to do it, right? The best, the best teacher is experience. So you've got to get out and do the work, not just learn about the work. Oh, man, the world needs to be saved. Oh, man, we need to know the gospel. You're right? We need to know all that, but now let's go give the gospel, and you'll learn it a lot better. You'll learn that several years ago we had this big debate running around the church about repentance and all this, and people were, were, were getting down to the fine hairs of uh, what repentance was, and does that mean it's works? Does it mean it's not works? And, it's, of course, it's a, from day one, it's always been a change of heart and mind that produces a change of life. But the point is simply this. One day I just was scratching my head, and I think, wait a minute, all these folks that are debating this, how many of them are leading people to Christ? Because you'll figure, figure out what repentance is when you start preaching the gospel and seeing people get saved. You will know intuitively what repentance looks like. You know, you just do when you're actually presenting the gospel to lost people who need to be saved. It makes sense. But when you're not, then you get confused and uh, it gets confounding. So anyway, I'm on the rabbit trail. But Christ is sufficient for our service. So just as Satan had a course for us, this is a good place to stop. God has a course for us to follow. And this is why we're challenged to walk in the Spirit in Galatians 5.16 so we can get on the course and finish the work that God has before we're raptured out of here or perish. And, and this is where discipleship is so important. So you've got to understand who God saved you to be or you won't do what God saved you to do. That's why it is important. When you tell a young man that gets saved that all your job here on the earth is to do is go build, 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 go, 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 serve, serve us, but you never foster the relationship with Jesus, you're going to burn them out. And it's about Jesus. And so we don't do anything just because we're saved. Uh, we, we don't do anything to be saved, I'm sorry. We, we should be laboring now that we are saved, though. So, so you don't do anything to get saved. It's all a gift. It's by grace. But once you get saved, yeah, go to work. You're going to be judged for the things done in the body, whether it be good or bad. There is a, there's an impetus to get to work. So today, many people make serving Christ kind of esoteric. You know, it's kind of like, well, if I feel like it, I'll do it. And so it really doesn't need to be that esoteric. There is so much to do. You just do it. Well, I don't know if that's my spiritual gift. You know what? Whether it's my spiritual gift to clean toilets, sometimes I just go clean the toilet. It just has to get done because I'm serving Christ. It really isn't that difficult. You just got to have a mind to work. And so there's a teaching that your gifts need to fit the work, but I I do believe God is powerful enough to bring the gifting to fit the worker. That's not often taught either. A lot of times when we're doing spiritual gift tests, we're we're testing natural gifts or natural uh, personality traits and stuff like that. I'm a big believer that oftentimes God will bring, he'll bring what you need to do the work. Now you say, well, bro, that sounds a little charismatic, Brian. Well, I'm not a charismatic, but I tell you what, I do believe the power of the Spirit of God to accomplish his mission through his people. 
And if you get willing people, God will make it happen. We don't really know what we're doing publishing Bibles. We're doing it anyway. God will bring all the things that we need to get the Bible published. Praise God. And so God is much more concerned about our attitude than our aptitude. That's all I'm trying to say. If we have the right attitude, he'll give us the aptitude. Now, obviously, some people are more gifted by nature, right? Some people have mechanical instincts. Some people have people gifts and oratory skills and all of that. But Moses didn't, and God used him anyway, <laughs> right? And so, you know, God will use you if you allow him to use you. And so, uh, and so he does use the weak things to confound the wise. So that's what makes the ministry supernatural is a bunch of people coming together by faith and God blessing it because they're actually fulfilling the work that God has them. You don't get saved by you don't get saved by doing any works. Jesus did all the work on the cross, but we are saved unto good works. So that's where I'm going to stop for tonight. And so I apologize. I was going to try to finish up the chapter, but I'll have to do that next week. So any questions? I kind of ran through that like a sermon almost. Any uh, any questions tonight? Any comments? Did one thing that anyone learned? Did anyone learn anything tonight that they didn't know before? Ray's looking at the computer. Who's online? All right. To all of you that joined us online, we're thankful. I think we were flashing the text line, right? So if we were, if we weren't, then that's okay. But Ray's going to put that up. If you need to have a question, you need something, uh, don't hesitate to text us, text us at HBF here, and, and uh, we will answer that text ASAP. So we're glad that you joined us tonight. Uh, and we hope to see you here either in person or uh, our next service will be Sunday morning at 1030. Oh, actually, Sunday morning at 9 will be the Adult Bible Fellowships. You'll have about five of those available. And then at 1030, you'll have this uh, this available at 1030 worship. And then we'll have the graduation. We are not we're not broadcasting that. So we, if you want to, I hope everybody wants to see the graduation. That'll be.